Hi, good morning. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Hey, I want to mention uh, our offering from last week was $87,916.51, which is just a wonderful praise the Lord. Um, when I see that one penny there, I think of uh, maybe a child that put a penny in or somebody who returned one of those, uh, you know, like a government check that's always an odd number, you know. <laughs> so praise the Lord, that is a huge answer to prayer along with the ways responded to our prayers for, for rain. Will you join me in prayer just to thank the Lord? Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the ways that you supply our greatest needs. And yet, uh, we see around us your hand so gracious that we cannot enumerate all the ways in which you favor and uh, generously grant us the riches of this life. And we thank you not only for this and for answered prayer, but thank you for your Son and thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit, a hope and a future because you love us. Thank you in Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen. This morning we're in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, as we continue our series in uh, um, Simple Stories. Uh, daring truths. And this is the parable of the wedding banquet. So I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the main roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests... He saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. 
Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. When I was four, I know this because it was a sunny morning, and we were at our house in Long Beach. My mother was at the door with her back to me, and she was unlocking the door, and I was talking to her about a toy I really wanted, and I called it cheap because I thought if she knew it was cheap, that would encourage her to, uh, to get it for me. I remember she stopped and uh, turned around and explained to me that it was not cheap. That cheap has more to do with poor quality than it has to do with price. And as you might imagine, that stuck. I rarely, if ever, use the word cheap for something that's inexpensive, unless that something is also chintzy because cheap conveys to me the sense, as my mother explained it, of not something inexpensive, but of something of poor quality. Which brings me to the expression cheap grace. Cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor and theologian, in fact, martyred for his faith in Jesus the Christ put to death by the Nazis, hanged on April 9th, 1945, days from Allied's liberating that particular concentration camp where he was put to death. Bonhoeffer is best known to the public for his book, The Cost of Discipleship. In fact, the German title just means disciple. In the book, he coined the expression cheap grace. Not because God's grace is cheap, but actually because God's grace is costly. Cheap grace has more to do with the way we respond to, do, to God's grace rather than the quality. In fact, in his book, he writes, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Cheap grace could be illustrated as hearing the gospel presented like this. Of course, you've sinned, but now everything is forgiven so you can stay just as you are and enjoy the benefits of forgiveness and relationship with God. 
I'm sure that some of this was spurred for Bonhoeffer out of the glaring contrast between his reading of the parables of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, and what he saw happening in the church of Germany, the German national church in particular, in the face of the rise of Nazism. And it's just gradual assimilation. And it was a shell. There was an absence of a living vitality of a church. In other words, cheap grace is like an invitation to a great honor to join the king at a sumptuous banquet, a wedding banquet in honor of his son, to which the guest... The recipient accepts the invitation, but doesn't want to be troubled with attending the banquet. Perhaps he whistles delightfully, honored just by the fact that he's invited as he goes off to do what he would do anyway. Jesus' parable of the wedding banquet illustrates God's grace and its disgrace. God's dignity and our indignity. It illustrates costly grace and cheap grace. The great honor and worth of the king's invitation is met with indifference, not even the dignity of a reply. And that's why I've uh, worded the main point of this parable, honor God's grace with a dignified reply. I'm trying to get at the fact that, as Aristotle said, dignity does not consist in honors, but in deserving them. And God deserves honor, especially when we appreciate his grace. But if we don't appreciate his grace, then of course, we don't even see it as grace, perhaps. We're indifferent to it. Our lives should dignify God's grace, not reject God's grace. Should dignify his grace, not misjudge his grace. Should dignify his grace and not dishonor it. I uh, was reminded as I was thinking about the dignity, showing dignity in the way we respond, the way we reply. Um, when I was growing up, we had a big, it was a, had a red cover. It was fascinating to me. I first got onto it because my mom would consult it whenever she was going to throw a dinner party. And that was Emily Post's uh, big book on etiquette. I guess she was kind of the mother of American etiquette. But she emphasized just how important it was to receive, um, I mean, if we receive an invitation with an RSVP, how important it is for us to reply promptly, 
In fact, she said we're obligated to reply. To not reply is inexcusably rude, quote, unquote. And sometimes we understand that when we send out an invitation or we reach out to somebody and we just don't get any response at all. And that's uh, taking into account, of course, uh, you know, the breakdowns in contemporary communication. I mean, things do get lost in the mail and emails sometimes don't get sent. Our server was out this whole weekend and uh, so I'm still waiting for email I sent out on Friday to get to you if I sent you something or to receive something. I sent myself an email and I'm waiting for it. And it's true. Um, Fortunately, I got to myself um, I got that RSVP that I'm responding. But that's what RSVP means. It's French. RSVP stands for French. And do you know what it means? Please respond. I want to hear from you. You know, I want to know that I, that I touched you or that what I did for you makes some kind of a difference. That's, that's really, in a sense, uh, in the most basic human terms, the best way I can put it is, uh, you know, we just, we just shouldn't ignore or be indifferent or reject God's grace. And we see that especially in verses 1 through 7. What's Profound to me is the word in verse 5. Now, in the English Standard Version, it's translated this way. They paid no attention. I'm not sure how your version renders this word. I think a good translation of this particular word would be care not at all. Care not at all. In other words, indifferent. And it is, it's kind of sad. What's uh, extra powerful is the fact that they've already been invited and now they're just being told everything's ready. But they are indifferent and they go off to the fields or their business. These are against this background of Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God, his proclamation, his ministry is an invitation to enter into relationship with God. And so against this background, this parable presents in the imagery of Israel's own history the importance of what Jesus is doing because in effect, He's uh, more or less saying everything's ready. I mean, the messengers that have been ignored, rejected, play upon Israel's own past when prophets were ignored, rejected, abused, and killed. And in fact, uh, the king's action with troops, um, killing the murderers and burning the city, uh, draws upon Israel's own historical imagery when, when Jerusalem was destroyed and they were overrun by a foreign nation. And so this is all kind of caught up here to make them aware of this vital warning not to ignore, not to be indifferent, 
not to reject, not to snub, not to treat in an indignant, undignified way God's message to them in Jesus Christ. Don't reject, but dignify. Don't misjudge. It's interesting in verses 8 through 10, the king says, go out to the intersections, if you will. The best thing I could, illustration I could give you would be, uh, this would be like, go out to Highway 99 and flag down people that are just on their way to L.A., you, you, you know, you learn from watching movies about the Wild West, uh, or perhaps you read history, that, that the uh, intercontinental railway tied America together, together, and many cities sprung up around the railroad. If the railroad chose to bypass your city, your city could shrivel, you know, because it meant that the commerce and all the action and activity was going on out there. And so the king in effect, says, I want you to go beyond our kingdom to the edge of our kingdom, if you will, and I want you to invite all that you can find, which is an open invitation. And in fact, it says that they found evil, literally evil or wicked, bad, and good. And the banquet hall was filled. But what's striking is that the king says... These others who were invited, they're unworthy. That tells us something very powerful. That tells us that God's action toward us, his grace, his unmerited favor, his generosity, I'm using synonyms because grace is, a, is bigger than a word. It's God's disposition. You know, it's that he doesn't turn his back on us, but he, he faces us. It, it, if I said he smiles upon us, that's all grace, his goodness, the fact that it's showered upon us. When we talk about his love, when we talk about any positive good thing that God does for us, when we think about creation, it's all of grace. In Jesus Christ, we have the pinnacle expression of his grace. But when he says they're not worthy, it tells us that God's grace toward us, his disposition toward us, his outlook upon us is, a, is an evaluation of us. It says we're worthy. We're worthy. But when we reject it, at least on the strength of this parable, there's something to be seen here. He says, you're unworthy. So go to those others. Go to those who will value me, value my grace, and call them to the banquet. And the good and the bad assemble. That's pretty striking. It's easy to misjudge his grace. Just for a brief moment, 
Uh, I've been pondering this this week, seeing some of this in myself. You know, I've been born and raised. I'm enculturated. I'm an American and proud of it. But there are some things that come with being an American, being a first world citizen, if you will, whether you're European or American, especially in this day and age in which the world is shrunk. I mean, you know, if you're involved in social media, you have to become accustomed to the fact that perhaps you have friends and acquaintances that are in Europe in all parts of the world. So when you talk about Thanksgiving, you know, or when you talk about this special holiday or that, and it's all American, you know, they're going, or you say, hey, good morning, and they're going, oh, it's midnight here. We have this perspective sometimes that's distinctly or prominently American. And one thing that we Americans love is we love winners. We love winners. We, we idolize, we elevate winners, celebrities, people who've made it. I'm not saying that it shouldn't be that way. But sometimes that perspective can become so ingrained in us that we can find ourselves in some ways unprepared for grace. Because grace does not just honor the winners, the A-list, the rich, the distinguished, those who win the race every time. In fact, sometimes people treat grace as though it's not a gift. That's the very nature of grace. It's the gift quality. They don't, they don't treat it as a gift. They treat it as a right, as an entitlement. And that just, that runs in our blood in the United States. We're so used to having so much that we think it's just the way it should be. And then we take the next step and we say, that's the way it should be because of who I am. I've got these captivating good looks because I am special. I am superior. I look down on others. And if I don't show it because maybe I might be misunderstood. Still, I have a certain disdain for them. And you know, that can seep into our soul and cause us to start evaluating what God is doing. It can cause us to measure things that way. I, to define things not by the gospel, but by that kind of Americanese. And then sometimes we say, well, I'm going to leave that behind because over here, this is where the winning Christians are. This is where the Christians all have the athletes that I see on television. Or this is Christianity where they have all the gurus and all the people are bowing down to the gurus. They're flocking 
And I want to flock with them because I love a winner. I'm a winner. And I don't, I don't want us to misunderstand God's heart or his grace. This is counterculture stuff. When he says, go out. And they brought in the good and the bad. Not just the elite. And don't dishonor God's grace. In verses 11 through 13, we're introduced to a representative figure. A man who is totally undressed for the banquet. It's kind of like, I'm just here for the food. And the king enters and he says, why aren't you dressed for the banquet? Now you have to understand, remember the composition of this banquet. It was very clear, good and evil people. But somehow they're not singled out because representatively, this guy is dressed differently than everyone else. They're dressed for the banquet. They've, been, they've changed into something to honor the distinction, to honor the honor they've been shown, to honor the value that has been set upon them. So they've at least showered and cleaned up. There's nothing here that, you know, suggests that garments were handed out. How did this guy get by without having a garment put on or anything like that? It's just plainly this, that this guy made no effort to honor the king, to honor his son, to honor the distinction, favor, and value that had been shown to him in inviting him. And it, it becomes apparent because he has no answer, which is an indication of shame. By the way, a banquet, these kinds of, these were the distinctions of how honor is shown in that society, in that culture. And it brings us to an understanding, an appreciation, a glimpse at least of, of God's grace and the importance of repentance. Repentance should be a part of our, of our experience as believers, because the grace of God, yeah, I guess in a, if we were using an, an analogy of, of accounting, we could say, well, here's our, here's our financial record. Here's my financial record. And I'm, my financial record shows all this debt to God. And in the cross of Jesus Christ, in accepting what he's done for me, that cancels that debt. I understand that. But this is not just a concept. I'm not living with a concept. I'm living with the living God. God didn't send his son just so we could get a concept. He wants a relationship with us. And that relationship is established on the basis of that love and act of Jesus Christ on the cross. So, 
if I look at it as accounting, I can think about it and understand it and appreciate God more deeply because of the concept, you know, as accounting. Oh, the debt's been canceled. Paul does that kind of thing. He talks in that kind of language. But there's behind that, behind that grace is, if you will, the person of God. As I said, it's like his, his favor, his, his outlook on us. And he justly deals with all of our sin through the cross, through the death, the substitutionary death of his son, Jesus Christ. But how do we apprehend that? Do we just do it in terms of bookkeeping? Or do we do it in time... In, in terms of our living. When we look at it that way, each and every day can present us with opportunities in which we repent. We, we make adjustments according to his grace. We realize, you have loved me so greatly, it's changed in the way I look at others, the way I respond to others, the way I treat others the way I am willing to put my, my wants in second place. I'll choose second place as a person because of your great grace. We could go on and on. Repentance just means a change of heart. Just. That's a lot for us sometimes. But what could change our hearts but the generous love, the grace of God. That's got to filter into our experience. Repentance says, your grace means enough uh, to me. It means so much to me that I'm willing to be different because of it. If there's no repentance then I don't think we get the grace of God. It's like going into the banquet without changed clothes and the king coming in and saying, I don't get this. You aren't dressed in honor of my son. This morning, this bread and this cup is a powerful institution. In other words, Jesus instituted it so that we would remember who we are. We'll never be perfect. We'll never meet the debt. It's already been met. But if we value that, then every time he speaks to your heart, every time I know he speaks to mine, I want there to be the challenge of saying, yeah, I'll be there. I'm going to respond to your invitation. I've got the gumption <laughs> to love like I've never loved before, to forgive. As, no, I, though I'm uncomfortable forgiving because I don't have that personal experience with this person. I mean, you know, I'm going to just, I'm going to be Christ-like in this situation. That's what it's all about.
And when we take this bread and this cup, we're reminded that's within our ability to do because it's through his bread and his cup that the change takes place, that the reality is our reality. Gracious Heavenly Father, this morning as we prepare our hearts to take this bread, we realize this bread represents your life given for us in, the, in Jesus Christ. And this cup represents a new covenant, a new relationship, a relationship based on the shed blood of Jesus Christ, a covenant sealed, a new way of relating to you. Father, as we take this bread and this cup, teach us, stretch us, encourage us, convince us if we need convincing that our sin is not the obstacle. Lead us through this bread and this cup to obedience, to responding to you. Thank you for your grace in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd blessed, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 